Well, good morning, church. How are you guys feeling today? I'm feeling good. I don't know about you, but I'm feeling good. I think a large part had to do with uh, the amazing team leading us in worship today. Man, it's just so good to be able to hear this magnificent choir that is the church of God, being able to lift praises up to him. It just does something good for your soul. I don't know about you, but I need some of that in my life. So today, before we dive in, I want to talk to the people who are kind of new to MCC. Uh, We have this thing that we do at MCC called Connecting Point. It's where you get connected. It's where you go from, hey, I just kind of show up and I'm learning some things and I'm figuring some things out to go, man, that was actually the step I took to actually get connected. See, we believe that deep inside the heart of every person, there's really two kind of foundational needs. And one is right in that vein. To I, God hardwired us to be needed. He gave you gifts so that your gifts could be used inside the context of his faith family that is the local church. And so uh, everybody here, even if you're kind of new, like God has done something and has given you certain somethings, whether it's gifts, whether it's stories, whether it's wisdom, he has given you those things so that they could be used in the context of the body of Christ to glorify and magnify him. And on top of that, everybody has this desire to be known. To, to be a part of something where people know your name, people know your story, and people love you anyway, all right? And we could all use a little bit more of that in our life. And so Connecting Point is where that happens, where you begin to go, I am not just someone who comes here, but I'm someone who is needed, and I'm somebody who's known, and that happens within the context of making that connection from a tender to, man, this is my people. And if you want to be a part of that, it's going to be next Sunday, right after this service, right back there in that lobby. Text breadsticks. Uh, we, we do that because uh, we're going to have Olive Garden. And uh, it's not going to be unlimited breadsticks, but if you're nice, I would even be willing to go across the street and get you extra ones if you eat all the ones we got. I'm just that nice of a guy, honestly. I'm just kidding. I'm not doing that. So text breadsticks to that. It'd be a great time for us to be able to get together and hang out. Um, Hey, let's stand and uh, go to the word, if you will. Let's, let's go old school a little bit. Uh, stand up. We're going to read, read God's word together. Just give some honor to this holy, holy book and uh, read it. Go before God. We're in Hebrews chapter three. Amen. We made it. New chapter alert. Hello. Chapter three. This is the word of God. Best part of today is right here. Therefore, holy brothers, You who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. Consider Jesus. He's the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses was also faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that would be spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. This is the word of God. Let's pray, church. Father God, we thank you for your will for your ways, for what you're doing here at MCC. We thank you for this family that we are becoming. We thank you for the ways you are growing this family. We thank you for the things that you are doing here. But most of all, Jesus, we thank you for your blood shed so that we could be a part of this family. We thank you that it is by your blood now that we can be one so that we may have outward differences. We may come from different stories. We may have different opinions on things. Because of your blood, Jesus, we can be one. We can be brothers and sisters who look to you 
as the one and only begotten son who makes that possible. And so Jesus, today I pray that more than anything else, we would consider Jesus. That by the words that I would say, it would lead people to see and consider you. That you would be at the forefront of everything that happens here. Jesus, my prayer for the next moments that we have together is that you would be lifted up. You tell us, you promise us that when Jesus is lifted up, when the Son of Man would be lifted up, he would draw all men to himself. And so, Jesus, I pray today you'd be lifted up in my words and my church family's minds so that our lives show that you are the lifted up. We're off our thrones and you're on it. Lead us, guide us, mold us, shape us. And Jesus, today we... We end this moment of prayer right here by praying the way you taught us to pray together. Our Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us of our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom it's the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Today I want to talk to you about what I believe are the two deepest needs. I'm going to hide for a second. Move this over. What are the two deepest needs inside of every human being? Whether you're a believer in Jesus or not, uh, these are what I believe the word points to this. Again, we're standing, everything we do is standing on the authority of who we see God to be in his word and what truth he tells us in here. That's what we're about is leaning into this and going, what in the world does this help us and guide us and show us about what life really is? If you read this and really, even if you just kind of look at life, what we come to find out is deep within all of us are two most basic and deep needs. And I would put these needs as this. We need a word from God and we need a way to God. The way I've heard this put is uh, for every single one of us, we live down here on this planet that is earth. And if we're just here to think about why we're here, if we're just here to try to figure out our own way, then we really mess that up. Human beings left without direction from a higher power, without direction from the omnipotent creator, without that direction, we don't do good by ourselves. It turns into this weird Lord of the Flies scenario and we kill each other, we hurt each other, we wound each other, we take advantage of each other. It's not pretty without God speaking in. We're confused. We don't know what to do. We don't know how we got here and we don't know how to get where we feel like we need to go. There's these deep longings and urgings inside of us. And so deep within every single person in this room is a need to hear a word from God. The 50 cent Christian uh, term for this is we need revelation. We need God to reveal who he is, how things were created to reveal who am I because of who that God is. How can I then have the next basic need met. If this is this God who created the universe, who put these things in existence, how do I get to him? And the reason our heart longs for something deeper and more significant than anything in this life is because we were created for something that this world that we live in here could not satisfy. We were created to get back to the all satisfying heavenly father 
God. That's why you can go and experience the best meal. You can experience the most deep, intimate relationship thing. You can uh, win the greatest trophy. You can have all the money in the world. And deep within, you can see all the interviews from all the celebrities, the Tom Brady's, the, the millionaires, the billionaires, all these people. Still, they come to this place where time and time again, they say, I had it all, but I still felt empty. So if we live in a world where even all the things and all of their excess could never satisfy our deepest longings, that points to the truth and reality that we were not created for this world. And so we come to this place where we go, man, I have to hear a word, revelation from God. And hearing that, it'll point to the way I can get to him. And today, as we enter into this passage in the book of Hebrews, we're going to see this pastor to the church of Hebrews begin to show the people that it is Jesus who both comes to us and shows us that he is the word from God, the revealed word sent from God. And he is also the way to him. He is both the revelation of God and the source of reconciliation for God's children to get to the father. And so if you got a Bible, let's go there. Hebrews chapter three, verse one. Let's see what the pastor is doing to the church he's writing to here. Hebrews three, one. We're gonna walk through this kind of word by word, verse by verse. We believe the Bible is such a thick book. And this passage we're gonna get in here is it's kind of like if you were standing in my backyard and you think you're just standing in my backyard with grass that's kind of struggling to come up and everything else. But what you didn't know is in my backyard, I had already buried $400 million worth of gold bars under the exact location that you were standing in. Now, while you're standing there, you're just like, man, this is, this is a nice yard. Like, you know, trees, pine trees. You know, I don't know why you still have your Christmas tree kind of over there. You know, like we're, we're a real tree family and like, for some reason we haven't burned it yet. And it's just kind of like over there, you know, it's just there. And you'd probably be asking me about that. But you wouldn't know the significance of the place you were standing because you wouldn't know what was beneath it. And so today, when you kind of stand on Hebrews chapter three, verses one through six, it's kind of one of those things. There is gold beneath the surface. And if you'll let me, I wanna to try to take you a little bit below the surface in this passage and walk through some of these words that just surface level reading, you kind of go, oh yeah, you know, that makes sense. I don't wanna take you a little deeper. You guys okay with that? Okay, cool. I was gonna do it anyway, but I just wanna make sure you were on board. He says, therefore, holy brothers who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. So let's just start right here. First word, holy. Holy means that you've actually been set apart. Remember, he's talking to a group of people who were Jewish, Jewish people, Jewish Hebrews. That's why Jew, Hebrew, um, Israel, that's this group of people who had put their faith and their hope and trust. They're following after God. They believe in the concept of Yahweh. They trust in all this. Now what has happened is Jesus has come on the scene and Jesus has become the fulfillment of everything they knew in God. He's brought completion to all of God's story that was the Old Testament. There's this new covenant that is bound up in Jesus and they've actually begun to put their faith and trust in that. And what the author of Hebrews is continuing to do is to go, don't let go of what you have in Jesus. Don't downgrade Jesus. Don't even slip back into this lesser version of following after Yahweh that was just, I'm going to follow Yahweh, but don't have a Jesus. I'm going to follow the father, but not have a son. He's going, don't let go of that. And so what he says is you have been made holy in Christ. That word holy means you've been set apart. 
It's God saying, I have a unique and special purpose for you. And in the same way, I believe the author of Hebrews is writing this to his church and going, hey, you are being made holy in Christ. God has a unique, special purpose for you. I would say the same thing to you, regardless of your story, regardless of what you've done, regardless of where you feel like right now, you, if you're in Christ, you are a holy part of the family, set apart. Even though you feel like you're falling apart, it doesn't mean that you have not been set apart. So he says, holy brothers. Now we can read that word brothers. And again, you know, ladies in the room, you go, well, it's always got to be about the brothers. Well, the word is kind of all inclusive. It kind of, he's saying, holy brothers and sisters, we're in there too. But what we can think of when, it, when we hear that is just going, oh yeah, like in Christ, we're all brothers and sisters. And isn't that nice? We can look around and see all sorts of different pigmentation and ages and everything at, at, at MCC. And we're all brothers and sisters. And that is so true. That by the blood of Christ, we are brothers and sisters, but we have to take it to the understanding of how we became brothers and sisters. We didn't become brothers and sisters through great social justice. We didn't become brothers and sisters because we figured out the right new thing to get rid of whatever thing that made it come in between us. We became brothers and sisters because of Jesus, not social justice. We become brothers and sisters by the blood of Christ shed on the cross for us. And so what it's saying here is it's not just we're brothers and sisters down here. It's saying we have the only begotten son who is our brother. He's the begotten brother who makes us brothers and sisters. We are first and foremost as individuals united to him. It's like, bro, you're, bro, literally, brother, you're, brother Jesus, you make me one with the Father. And then in light of that, this is the amazing thing about Christianity, is we look forward and go, Jesus, you made a way for me to be a part of the Father's family. You are my big brother. And then we look around and go, oh, man, so is everybody else who's in you. If you've forgiven me, you've forgiven them. If your blood unified me with the Father, then your blood has unified me with them. And all other things, all other policies, all other politics, all other skin colors, all other uh, voting tendencies, all other backgrounds, heritage, all those preferences, all those fall away as we go. We're part of a new family. Part of a new family. So he says, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling. Let's stay right there on that heavenly calling thing. So it's going, hey, you're family. Jesus made you family. And you've got a heavenly calling. Now, in order to actually understand what that means for you, you got to go backtrack a little bit into the context. I believe, I don't know if, I don't know if the guy who's writing this, some people say it's Apollo, some people say it's Apostle Paul, there's a couple other different theories. I don't know if the guy who's writing this fully understands how prophetic he was being in this moment and how important and how significant it was that he was trying to get their eyes off of what was in front of them and get their eyes focused on what their calling was this heavenly calling, this, this place where there was no more tears, this place where there's no more pain, there's no more sickness, there was no more persecution for their faith. It's so crazy because what they didn't know was getting ready to happen. So remember, this is a group of Jews who have now put their hope and faith and trust in Christ. So now they're disciples, followers of Christ. As that's happened, people begin to turn their back on them. They're losing all the privileges that they had in a still Roman dominated society because now they're coming out of the umbrella of Judaism and now walking under this brand new, I mean, only a few years old umbrella that is Christianity. And because of that, they're beginning to face persecution. They face it as their family, as their other Jewish family members begin to turn their back on them and say, you're not invited to Passover feasts anymore. You're not able to do these things. And what we begin to see, if we actually study early church history, is the, the book of Hebrews is written about AD 70. 
what's coming right after this, and it's again, no coincidence that God would prepare his church this way. What's coming right after this is Nero is going to get ready to blame everything that happens wrong in the Roman empire on guess who? Not the Jews, not the Romans, the Christians. And so on the roads leading out of, the, the, of, of their empire, they're going to line the streets with crosses and with Christians burning on them. And so guys, it is no coincidence that the author of Hebrews in a very eerily prophetic voice says, brothers and sisters, we have a heavenly calling. It says, if by the power of the Holy Spirit, he knew things, you're in Christ. And despite what uh, white tooth, slick hair, perfect smile, televangelist tells you, coming to follow Christ, if it didn't mean that life was gonna get better, sunshines and rainbows for the church in Hebrews, then, then what that means for us is still true, that following Jesus does not necessarily equal peaceful, easy, perfect life. Their life, if they were going to hold fast to Christ, was actually going to mean, track with me here, it was going to get worse. And so what he does is he says, we've got to understand where we're going. We got to understand what's really ahead of us. Because there's going to be some bad stuff that's ahead of us. And, and, and I don't, I'm not trying to be prophetic to you, but dare I say, at some point in your life, you may experience some negative things from this moment here to your heavenly calling. But what you need to understand is if you are in Christ, you have that same heavenly calling that at some point you're gonna receive and the place you've been called to is this heavenly place where there is no more pain, this heavenly place where there is no more tears, this heavenly place where you don't have to pretend to be okay anymore, this place where you are actually okay and even more than okay, you're great because you're in the presence of your great God. He says, this is what you have. This is what you've been called to. You have a heavenly calling. And the great news in this is you don't have to wait to heaven to begin to live that out. You can live it out here. That's why I prayed the Lord's Prayer before we started. Your will be done where? On earth as it is in heaven. So he says, you have been made part of the family. You've been made holy if you're in Christ and you have this heavenly calling. It is where you're ultimately heading, despite the fact that you may head through some persecution, despite the fact that you may head into some loneliness, despite the fact that you may head into some isolation, you have a heavenly calling. The family's gonna get back together again. He says, in spite of all that, here's what I need you to do, to consider Jesus. Now, we can read that in our Western language and go, well, that's kind of weak. That consider Jesus sounds honestly kind of passive. It's like, if we went to Chili's after church today and we were looking at the menu and you're like, Trent, what's really good? And I was like, consider the Southwest egg rolls, you know, and then dip them in that green ranch sauce. It's awesome. Consider that. That would be really good. Not, not a lot of people eat that. Consider that. That's not what he's after here. The, the Greek word here for consider is actually more closely tied to this idea of be consumed, pay the most close attention, be captivated by Jesus. Con not just consider like he's another option among other gods that you could potentially choose from. Like he's another thing that you can choose to add to your life. He's saying Jesus is everything. And so in everything that you're doing, consider him. He is the lens through which we now see everything that we see in this life. We see relationships as we consider Jesus. We see our finances considering Jesus. We see parenting as considering Jesus. We see our singleness considering Jesus. We see all of those as we look through the lens of who Christ is. We see everything else. He's saying consider Jesus. 
So what does consider Jesus even look like? You may find yourself asking. I want to show you. It's going to come up in a second. Don't know. It's the next one, but mine's not doing it, guys. And there it is. Oh, just, that's on the light. Okay. So here's what I would say. You're like, okay, what does it mean for me to consider Jesus? How, how in the world do I even do that? Well, I, I, would, I would put it in some of these words. Considering Jesus, is, it starts with this desire. I, I genuinely have a desire to see him in every aspect of my life. When you got infatuated with a person in middle school or high school, like nobody had to tell you if you were at least at the place where you didn't have to send love notes, Nobody had to tell you to check your phone periodically throughout the day because they may text you. What were you doing? You were pulling that bad boy out. Or you were flipping that thing open, you know? <laughs> and you would check it. And if you're real cool, you could close it with one hand. Hit that, fop, you know? <laughs> when nobody showed you, no, nobody said you anything. But you, you genuinely had a desire to see what they were speaking to you. You genuinely had a desire to spend time with them. And, and I think this is what Jesus is after when he talks about, man, you, when he's writing to the churches um, who, who are you know, trying to figure out how to maintain and hold their faith in the letters to the churches in the book of Revelation, when he says, you've lost your first love, I think he's trying to hearken us back to this, this reality that we've all felt when we have just totally desired to sit and to be with somebody and to know here's, here's why you really desired them was because you knew they desired you. And that was special. So there's a desire there. What it means to consider Jesus means to, to have a genuine desire to be with him. And then, well, this is a cuss word in our culture right now, concentrate, all right? And, and, and I say that because like we sit with phones and, and, and everything is designed around short bursts of attention, like 20, 30 seconds tops of things. And we're considering all these other things, considering all these other things. And the enemy of concentration is considering the endless possibilities that are at your fingertips on your phone. And so what he's saying here is when it, when it comes to consider Jesus, I have to be willing to give Jesus my concentration. And so, again, to just ask a diagnostic question, the same way maybe a doctor would ask you and you came in and you said, hey, my, 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 my body feels sick. If you feel spiritually sick, spiritually empty, spiritually numb, I would ask you the question that maybe a doctor would ask, when was the last time you concentrated on Jesus? Not when you just read something and got through it to check a box. Not when you just came to church. But when was the last time you concentrated on Jesus? Next one I would say is, is discipline. I, I show and I display with my life that I'm actually considering Jesus when I am disciplined with the things that I do. I practice, you know, here, here we are again talking about these hard words, these spiritual disciplines of prayer, of fasting, of, of gathering together corporately, weekly, in and out to worship God together. I practice spiritual disciplines of giving and being generous with my time. I practice the spiritual disciplines of, of laying my needs down so that other people can experience the things that are not things worth getting arguments over so that our relationships break. I'm going to take the spiritual discipline of saying, this isn't a doctrinal issue. This isn't a sin issue. This is just preference. And for the sake of our relationship and the fact that we're brothers and sisters in Christ, I'll lay my preference down so that we can stay brothers sisters in Christ. And then lastly, it's just time. You can't consider Jesus and be like, well, I consider him, you know, if it pops up and I, you know, oh, I should consider Jesus. No, I, I'm, I'm, this is really primary where the discipline comes out. 
It's in the time that I spend to consider him. Because if I don't spend the time, I can't be disciplined. If I don't spend the time, I can't concentrate. If I don't spend the time, then what's the point of the desire? So this is what it looks like for us to be people who are actually considering Jesus. And again, it's in every area and aspect of our life. So he says, consider this Jesus. This Jesus. And he talks about who he is. And this is where it begins to answer our big problem at the beginning, our two deep needs. He says, consider Jesus. He's the apostle and he's the high priest of our confession. Now, what do we say at the beginning? It's the two things that we desperately need to have. We need a word from God and we need a way to God. And lo and behold, what the author of Hebrews does right here is he says, that is Jesus. And he comes right off the bat and he says, Jesus is the apostle for us. So when he says Jesus is the apostle, that word means he is the one sent on behalf of God. This is the only time in scripture where Jesus is referred to as the apostle. Because I think sometimes we can hear that and go, well, I thought Jesus had apostles and like 12 of them. How is he the apostle? Well, that word apostle really means sent on behalf of God. Sent to reveal the truth about God. Sent to be the word. Sent to be the, back where we started, the revelation of God. So to if I have seen Jesus, I have seen God. So when I look through the gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, I go, what is our God like? I see him in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, as we see his life fully on display. He is the apostle sent to us as his people to be the word from God that gives us our identity, to be the word that reveals who the father is to us, to be the word that reveals the apostle sent to show us who this guiding Holy Spirit will be and to be the one who shows us the way to get to that father and what we have to go through to get to him, which is why he doesn't just say he's the apostle sent. Because if he was just the apostle sent to reveal the truth from God, track with me here, what Jesus totally could have done. And I believe God in, in, the, in the person of Jesus is magnificent and glory enough, glorious enough to have done this. He could have just showed up and turned his man meter all the way down, stood in the center of Jerusalem and just started glowing and just let the majesty and the glory that was bound up in him as a hundred percent God walking in Galilee and people would have bowed down on their faces and worshiped him. He, he could have just said, Boop, here I am. Everybody worship. There was enough glory in the man named Jesus from Nazareth for that to happen. But he chose not to do it that way. He chose to come and speak and talk and walk. And on top of that, he came not just to live a life, but to die. And that's why the pastor of the Church of Hebrews here says, he is our apostle sent on behalf of God to show us the word, the revelation from God. But he is also our high priest who reconciles us now back to God. And so for the Hebrews reading this, the Jewish people reading this, they would have understood. They had, a high priest was a centrifugal part of their faith up until they put their faith in Jesus. Because up until them putting their faith in Jesus, they needed a high priest to be reconciled to God, to have their sins forgiven. So every year they would go in, they would bring, you know, the, the high priest would go into the Holy Holies, he would slaughter a lamb, and that lamb, would blood would spill out over the mercy seat of God. It's kind of the lid that covers the, the Ten Commandments, the tablets of God, covers that, spills out blood everywhere. It's gross, it's supposed to be gross. To remind us how gross sin is before a holy, righteous, perfect God, blood spilled, and what that blood does, what the high priest does through shedding the blood is now the people are forgiven. Now the people have a way to actually be able to connect with God. 
But what we see when he, he and he's gonna to continue to elaborate this idea that Jesus is the great high priest. And we're gonna get, I don't wanna go t- too far in this because I'm gonna be just continuing to lean into that as we get ready to go through the rest of Hebrews. But when he says he is the true high priest, what that means is Jesus is both the lamb to be slaughtered and the priest to do the slaughtering. What that means is he is both the sacrifice and the sacrificer who willingly lays down his life as the lamb of God so that you can be connected to the father God. So he is the one who does what? He makes the way, which is no coincidence for him to show up. And when he tells people, well, how in the world do you get to the father? He makes it very clear. I'm the way, I am the truth, and I'm the light. And no man will come to the father, not through Buddha, not through Muhammad, not through good works. No man will come to the Father unless he or she comes through me. He lays that right out there. And this is where he's meeting our two deepest needs of a word from God and a way to God. He's our apostle and he's our high priest. And the author of Hebrews is trying to help the people understand this, that in Jesus, the apostle, you have someone you can trust. In a world full of untrustworthy stuff, where you see stuff online, you're like, man, is this really true? You hear stuff from even the places you would want to be true, like our government. And you're like, is that really true? You know, like trust for government officials is at an all-time low. What a great time to trust in Jesus. I can trust you. To have seen you is to have seen seen God himself. To read your word is to read words from the very mouth of God. I can trust you. You're the word from God in a world full of people that I can't trust, full of politicians that I can't trust, full of my even voice in my head that I can't trust. Thank God for his word that I can. And then he says, on top of that, you have a high priest, one who will represent God to the people and then represent the people back to God so that you now know that when God looks at me, what he doesn't see is my sin, my shame, my mistakes. What he sees is his son's sacrifice. And now I stand in utter humility as a bloodstained sinner who's been washed perfectly clean by the blood of an innocent savior. So I live, again, I live with no fear. There's nothing Satan can hold against me because my sin was held against Jesus on the cross. He intercedes on my behalf. He is the priest who both became the sacrifice and made the sacrifice on my behalf. And this is hard for us sometimes to grasp these two things, that he is our apostle and he's our high priest, because we don't consider Jesus. See, what I believe the pastor to the church in Hebrews was doing was going, guys, you're gonna not consider Jesus. You're gonna let go of your faith. And if you do that, it's because you forget to realize who Jesus is. What happens to us, I think, is what's happening to them a lot, is you just begin to navigate your faith based on your feelings. And and the reason he says, you've got to consider these things. It's an active work of the mind. You've got to take your mind off the things of this earth and put them on the things of Christ. It's because your feelings will not lead to the lasting change that you need to have happen in your life. It is only through your brain actually being engaged with what's happening in life and who Jesus is and how those two things relate to each other that we have any hope, which is why he takes them on not a emotional roller coaster, but he takes them on a doctrinal roller coaster and calls them to look back in their holy scripture at their hero, Moses. Y'all gonna have to move them forward. It's not working.
There we go. So he's talking about Jesus. He said, Jesus, who was faithful to him who appointed, Jesus was faithful to God who appointed Jesus, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. So basically what he's saying right there is God told Jesus what to do. Jesus was faithful to live out the call of God. And in the same way, God told Moses what to do. Go tell Pharaoh, let my people go. And Moses was faithful to what God told him to do. So both of these guys are faithful. So right now they're on the same playing field. Go to the next verse, please. This is how we see how great of a guy Moses is. Now, the good news is, is Moses, for everybody that was hearing this, they were like, he's our hero. So if you're getting ready to tell us that Jesus is better than Moses, you better make a point. Now, the good thing is they had scriptures. They would have known some of this. In Numbers 12, 6 to 8, we see how big of a deal Moses is. And he said, hear my words. This is God speaking now. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in vision. I speak to him in a dream. So he's saying, when there is really a prophet, when, I want, when somebody's coming in and speaking on my behalf, <clears throat> the way I'm going to speak to them is kind of in some riddly ways. I'm going to, I'm going to show up and, and hit them at nighttime when they're sleeping. But he says, not so with my servant Moses. I love even how God is possessive over Moses' life here. It's powerful. He says, not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him, I speak mouth to mouth, face to face, clearly and not in riddles. And he beholds the form of the Lord. That's wild to think about. And that's why there was such reverence for the people, the Jewish people in Moses. Moses was the hero of their faith. And what Jesus gets ready to show them is that everything that Moses was is truer and greater bound up in Christ. That Moses was just little clues on the treasure map that leads to the ultimate treasure that is Christ. That Moses was the shadow and Jesus is the true substance. And this is why he goes on to, uh, next verse in Hebrews there. He goes on to say, for Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. Which again, the people in the room, as they're reading this, would have went, <gasps> or would have gone, what? Like, serious? Wow, man, he's a big deal. Which is what the author is trying to do. He is the biggest deal. He is truer. He is greater. And if we trust in him as a truer, greater, exemplary version of everything we read about in the Old Testament, then our lives will truly be true and great in him. So he says he, he's, he's worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of the house has more honor than the house itself. He's making a simple argument here. He says, guys, think about it like this. The person who builds the house is more important than the house itself. He gets more glory of this majestic thing that he built. Moses is the one who just existed in the house, but Jesus is the one who created the house. Moses was created, and actually he was created by Jesus. And that's why, he's, that's why he is not greater than Jesus. He's made by Jesus. Next verse. He says, he, again, he just kind of explained this, talking to him, you know, normal. He says, for every house is built by someone, but the builder of the house, the builder of all things, it's God, just making the point here. So it's like, come on, track with me, guys. Like, if Jesus is who I said he was in chapter one, well, that just makes it simple and true that he has got to be better than this Moses guy. If he is the one by whom and through whom all things exist, that includes Moses. So he's greater. He's the exact imprint of God. He's the one who, by whom, through whom, for whom, all things were created. So he goes on in this passage now to go, okay, well, what in the world does this mean for us? He says, now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. Again, this is the way he's saying here, is everything that Moses was doing was foreshadowing what was to come in Jesus. 
but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. So check the dichotomy that he's bringing here as he shows Moses and he shows Jesus. He said, Moses was a servant. He had a role and a mission to accomplish here. He was not a servant in the form of like a slave. When he um, gives this servant word here, it's actually a word that brings a little bit more honor than the normal Greek word for servant or slave, which was doulos. This word is more like the, I served in the military. It's I served in Vietnam. It's it's a service with some honor attached to it. So don't feel like he's denoting Moses or bashing Moses. He's saying Moses was in incredibly important. He had a role of honor, but what's happened now is one who is not just a person with a role, but a person with a bloodline has come into the picture. Servants, people who have been commissioned to do things, they do not get the inheritance. The person who gets the inheritance is the son and Jesus is the son of God. And he's making that point very clear of explaining why Jesus is the true fulfillment of Moses. And Jesus is the one who is the whole idea to have a God who has a house, a people, a nation, a holy bloodline. That was not something that Moses was like, yeah, this is what I want to do. And God's going to use me to do it. It was from the very beginning, something that Moses was going to begin as it was a plan from Jesus and Jesus was going to fulfill as it was his plan all along. So the passage goes on and now he lands this place. Next verse, please. We're going, okay, here's what this means. You have been bought and brought into this family. It's an amazing thing. And now have been purchased by Christ, redeemed by Christ, made new in this family. If you put your faith and trust in Christ, he says these words. And if we, we, all look around, like you're part of this we now. If we are his house, if indeed we hold fast to our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Now, If you're like me, you read this verse and the cynic in you begins to sheepishly raise his hand. Because I read, and if, and we are his house, if. I'll go, hold up, God. I thought you had unconditional love for me. That's an if. That sounds like a what? Condition. So we're part of the house if indeed we hold fast to our confidence and our boasting and our hope. So this, this is where one of those times where like, you've got to read this passage in and of your own time and go, hold up, stop, wait a minute. Like one of the best things you can bring to your quiet time and your time in the word is questions of going, hold on, what does that mean? That's, you know, I, I, I got a question, teacher. And then you go to the Holy Spirit, you go to the word. Begin to research. You, you do those things. You know, the elders and I, we're, we're here, small group leaders, we have some amazing small group leaders here to answer some of those questions. But we got to come to a passage like this and go, hold up, stop, wait a minute. That sounds like a condition to me. If. So in, in faith, in Christianity, there's, there's this doctrine that is called the perseverance of the saints. And it kind of goes like this. Those who are in Christ will be proven to truly be those who were in Christ if they persevere. If this faith is something that is held to them, it is the confidence that they have and they maintain through their life this confidence in their life. That does not mean that they're sinless. That does not mean that they're perfect. That does not even mean that they go through seasons where they fall away. But as their life ebbs and flows, it ends in this place where their faith persevered. And those are the people 
who are truly saved. Now, the other side of that coin is, and, and, and this is where it's hard because we know people like this in our life who go, I raised my hand at that conference. I prayed that prayer at that church in 83. I threw a log in the fire at that camp when I was 17. And then you know their story and they're out of control. Like when, it, when you go to back to this thing, and if you go, man, if they're holding fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope, you go like, that is not happening. Well, under this, this doctrine of perseverance of the saints, what it would say there is if this faith is something that somebody can just let go of, that faith was never saving faith. It was maybe an emotional moment for them. But the true sign that our faith is persevering faith is that it's persevering. The true sign that we have a faith that is real, that is saving, is the reality that we're continuing to work and fight and struggle and try our best to be able to hold on to what we have in Jesus. Now, I said a word there that for those of you in the room who are very grace-driven, you, you begin to you know, start itching a little bit. Oh, you said try your best, and I can't try to become a Christian. I can't. It's not my works. It's Christ's works, and I'm, I'm fully with you. Let me explain. You can read a verse like this, and it says, okay, if we hold fast to our confidence, our boasting, and our hope in Christ, and go, okay, bootstrap mode. I'm going to wake up in the morning. I'm going to put awesome God on, turn the dial to 10 and just get hyped every day. And I'm going to hold on to my confidence in Christ. And when I bump into some stuff, I'm going, I can do this. I can do this. I can do this. God, you're with me. I can do this. You're, you're misquoting, uh, you know, Philippians 4:13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You're just like hyping yourself up, banging your hands on your steering wheel before you go into work to deal with all those crazy people. And you're like, I can do this. I'm holding on to my confidence you're going to crash and burn real fast. Some of you already have. That's why you're like, mm-hmm. Here's what holding on to your confidence looks like. Here's all the list of the things I have going on today. Here's what's happening in my life, in my marriage. Here's what's happening in my kid's life. Here's what's going on at work. Here's what's going on in finances. Here's what's going on uh, with the temptations and the struggles that I'm facing and the things that I know are coming. And I look at all these things. I look at these things that are facing me right now. And I look at them and line by line, I'm not going, I can do this. I can do this. I can do this. I'm more than to conquer. I can do this. I can do this. I can do this. I can do all this stuff. I look at all the things that are happening in my life and I go, I cannot do any of these things in and of myself. I have not even the ounce of power to be able to make this happen in my life. Jesus, you tell me in your word that when I am weak, then I am strong in you. And so Jesus, I'm laying before you today, all of my weakness, hoping that all of your strength will live and reside in me. See, holding fast to our hope and our confidence, it actually really means letting go of anything that was our hope and anything that was our confidence and anything that was our boasting that wasn't Jesus. And that includes your effort for what he did in his finished work on the cross. And God, that's the beauty is that's the gospel. And that should free us up to go, oh, oh, great. I don't have to do this. It's his work in me. That's where the, the beauty of surrender in our Christian walk. It, your Christianity despite the Bible using some sports analogies to talk about how we do our faith, your Christianity is not a work harder, try better so you can get better results. It's rest in the finished work of our star player, Jesus. Trust in him. Trust that we are trophies of his grace and that he saved us. The battle is won 
and I surrender and I begin to walk in the victory that actually is mine in him. And when I'm, that's, that's where, <clears throat> this is what my hope is. And so I, I would ask you this question. It's not a fun question, but it's one of those big, deep questions I've got to ask you guys. Uh, can you show them that question? Where is your hope? Is it in being financially stable? Is it in being able to retire when you think you can retire? Is it in your kids just like, I just got to get them out of the house? I just got to get them up, get them 18 and not involved in street gangs or some kind of online gambling ring or something. Like, I just got to get them out. And then my hope is that we can just relax. I can go back to having adult conversations. It would be great. That's my hope. What is your hope? Do you be free from cancer? What is your hope? What are you hoping in? There's this wild verse that is somewhat obscure in the book of First Peter, First Peter, chapter three, verse fifteen. Peter's talking to another church, uh, a church that likely had some people who are from Hebrew background in it. Peter was one of the primary apostles, continuing to Jewish people. Paul was primary apostles to the Gentile people. So Peter is writing to these people, and he says these words in First Peter three fifteen. Listen to this. I don't. You don't even. You don't even have to go there. Just listen. He tells them, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you the reason for the hope you have. I'll say it again. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you the reason for the hope you have. They're saying, hey guys, I need you to, like, you better be ready because people are going to come to you and they're going to ask you, what's the reason for the hope you have? So let's just pause for a second. Let's go on a fun journey together. Go down memory lane and see if you can remember the last time somebody asked you the reason for the hope you have. Because Peter writes it. (laughs) He writes it like it's going to be happening every day. He's like, hey, everybody. You know, same way, same way teacher would say, bring your pencils to class. He's saying, bring your answer to the hope question. People are going to be out there. Like, we're living a life that is so different that people are going to be like, what? Why are you, what are you hoping for on that? Now, what if the reason the world is not asking us for the reason of our hope is because our lives look like we are hoping in the exact same things the world is hoping in. What, like, we gotta be, you get, again, the things that make me good at ministry and sometimes rough at marriage is I'm sometimes way too logical. And just track with me on the logic of this. If he's writing this and nobody's ever asking us this, we have to put those clues together and go, there's a disconnect somewhere, guys. That maybe, just maybe, this whole thing I'm going to talk about this a lot next week. I'm taking a break out of Hebrews because this passage right here kind of threw me in a a tailwind. Maybe, just maybe, we were never supposed to set out to be attractional churches that just go, hey, let's try to do everything kind of like the world so that we can get the world to come here and then hope they get some Jesus. What if we were supposed to be so drastically different that people actually goes, what are they hoping in down there? 
Like, why are they all going on those mission trips? Why, why are, the, dude, they lived in the gated neighborhood. Why are they going to the non-gated? They're downsizing going to the non-gated neighborhood so that they can, they can be more generous and that they can have more time and so they don't have to work crazy hours to be able to pay off the gated neighborhood's mortgage. What are they hoping for? You mean, why, why can't your kids stay over at my house? All the other kids in the neighborhood, they have, oh, it's fine for them to stay over here. And you go, no, they're going to sleep in my bed in my house. Well, why are you doing that? What are you hoping for? Well, I'm hoping that you understand the same thing I understand that I don't know about you, but the first time I saw a lot of really rough things, first time I took a sip of some really unfortunate things, where was it? Sleepovers. All right. What are you hoping in? And, and again, like, that's the reason when he starts out this chapter, he says, holy brothers and sisters. Now, some people, <laughs> they read holy and go, that's my invitation to be a weirdo. <laughs> and, and we've met those people, right? And you're like, that's too much. Like, again, again, I'm not calling, look, following Jesus is weird. Let's just be honest. Like we're, we're following a guy who was a Nazareth, you know, who, who died and rose again. Like there's some things about our faith that are just drastically weird, but there's a way to do it that is winsome. Uh, there's two terms in the, in the church world. I'm going to talk about these a lot more next week as I kind of take a break out of this and just talk about who we are as a church. There's the word attractional and missional. Attractional says like, we're going to, hey, you know what will help you really understand Jesus is if we help, we get the Lego movie to help you understand who Jesus is. Because, you know, nothing goes good with Jesus, but like Lego movie. All right. And so we want to track, we're going to, we're going to sing, you know, we're gonna, the day we talk about hell, we're going to sing highway to hell to kind of get you in the mood. And <laughs> I'm not making this stuff up by the way, like this is real stuff that happens in churches in America. So there's attractional and then there's, there's, there's missional biblical kind of over here. And so what I'm not saying that we become like, sometimes we can swing this pendulum all the way from here going, Hey, we want to be an attractional church. And you can swing that pendulum and go like, well, we want to be the opposite of that. Well, what's the opposite of attractional? repulsive. We don't want to be repulsive. We want to be, again, this goes back to something we leaned into this a few weeks ago. We want to be a biblical church and where the Bible is weird and confusing and doesn't make a whole lot of sense and just kind of bucks right up against our culture and the way things do things, then we'll remain a biblical church where we see in the Bible things that are awesome that our culture needs things like unification, things like being able to truly experience the racial reconciliation that's made available to us in Christ. Well, those are things, those are things our world is already hoping for. The heart cry of our world is actually answered in many of the things of scripture. So we're gonna to begin to turn those dials up. And so again, back to the question, what are you hoping for? Because the only way the world looks at us as the people of MCC and goes, there's something different is if you as individuals are actually living your life like your hope is somewhere else, not here. The, the, the thing about Jesus that you need to understand, because I want you to have a faith that makes it the long haul. The thing that you need to understand is that becoming a Christian, which I, I think a lot of people in the room today have become a Christian, Put your faith, put your hope, keyword, you hope. I'm, when you become a Christian, it's going, I don't hope in anything else. I'm not hoping in my good works. 
I'm not hoping in, in my ability to tr- try really hard to get to God. I'm hoping in nothing else. I'm not hoping in my righteousness. I'm hoping in the righteousness of Christ. So becoming a Christian and being a Christian happen the exact same way. When I talk about being a Christian, it's just like being one for the rest of your life. They happen the same way by hoping in Jesus. And the problem is like the day you raised your hand and got saved or the day you got baptized, it was like crystal clear to everybody. My hope is in Jesus. And then we go live the rest of our adult lives hoping in Retirement, hoping in 401ks, hoping in comfortability, hoping in kids that we can live vicariously through, hoping in all these other things, but Jesus. We hoped in him that day. But what about the rest of your life? What about the rest of your life? Does your life say and show that your hope is found in nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness? So as we end today, I'm gonna, Leave you with that question. Where is your hope? It's a great question to take into communion. As you sit there and you look at an element that represents the broken body of Christ and the shed blood of Christ, this is why I love being able to receive this every week because it's where we go, I was hopeless to do this. I was hopeless to have a perfect life. And then I was definitely, even if I lived perfect, there's no way I'm gonna let myself go to that cross. When they start, when, when, I, when I journey through the city and they're like, Hosanna, let's put a king on his head. Like, I'm gonna take that. And you would have too. So we hold these communion, this body and this bread, or the body and juice represents the blood. And we go, I have to hope in this. My hope can, can lie nowhere else because I could not do this. I could not shed innocent blood. I could not have my body broken. I am not the son of God. So I hope, my hope is in this. What I love about communion is communion was not the end. Friday was not the end of our story. Sunday happened. And what Sunday shows us is that in Jesus, we have a living hope. And this is why it's so different than in Christianity than any other world religion. Every other world religion for the most part has, has some prophet or some holy man or some wise guy who came, gave them all the messages about what they needed to do. You know, the only, I guess, living one is maybe Tom Cruise for Scientology. Like if he's their guy, he's still alive for the time being, but eventually even Tom Cruise is going to do what? He's going to kick the can. But what's different about us and our faith is that we have in Jesus a living hope who hears our prayers, who hears our cries and calls us heavenward in this moment. And at the same time is living and active through you to be your strength, to be your supply, to guide you as you release control of your life, surrender to him and say, I need your strength. He's in you, he's ready, he's ever present. He's gonna work through you in ways that you have no idea. As you commune with him today, I pray that you know you have a crucified hope, but you also have a living hope. And then we're gonna stand and proclaim that over song together. Jesus, we thank you that you are a living hope. I pray now that we would turn our eyes upon you, Jesus, that we would look full in your wondrous face and that the things of this world, all the things of this world, would begin to grow strangely dim in the light of your glory and your grace.